0: Radio Western. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlook. We are back live in the studio. First show of uh, March. Is that right? <laughs> Trying to keep track of time here. <laughs> care. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, I'm I'm correct there. Mm-hmm. Um, just yeah, thrown off a bit because we've been we were back in the studio, I guess, care about a month ago, early in uh, in February <laughs> for one show, but then we've had a few uh, pre records great episodes though okay, I think we should quickly shout out Purdy's chocolatier once more we spoke with their marketing manager Julia Cho last Monday and uh, just a big shout out to them Purdy's for their new braille box great to see inclusive design happening there universal design so definitely go to purdy's.com, look up their braille box and order one from your, for yourself highly recommended
1: or any other chocolate they have
0: for sure, yeah. You don't have, it doesn't have to be the Braille box. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm hyped up on that one. But they also uh, also thanks sh- to Julia for sending along their new uh, vegan. Um, I guess they're called Georgia Browns. This new chocolate that they have um, as well. And they, you know that was yeah. They're just,
1: like giant. Tur- they're like big turtles.
0: Yeah. So yeah, just really appreciate but, them uh, and uh,
1: vegan chocolate. I've never. I'm the guy. I'd ever had it before, and it. Uh, of course, there's still sugar, and they use. I think we. I got some ingredients from them. red. I think they use like. Uh,
0: is it coconut milk or yeah I was actually curious I was going to look that up yeah um, this this box wasn't braille but um anyway we had them on last week so if you missed that episode look back in the podcast feed outlook on radio western if you search that on any podcast service you should be able to find us and uh, yeah so so care we uh, we have another guest coming on today a zoom guest haven't done that in a while since since the end of 2021 for this show so this should be fun.
1: Yeah, Zoom is obviously what people use now. And of course, it takes some time sometimes to get all set up, but I think we've got it now. So I'm excited to talk to our guest today. He's got a a long list of accomplishments in the uh, advocacy arena. And so we're going to ask him a a bit about that and how how you, because we're always curious about how you keep up that sort of energy because it it gets so exhausting. And and, uh, so we like to learn from each other and happy to have John Ray on the show today.
0: Yeah, so I think everything should be working here. So uh, welcome, welcome John to Outlook.
2: Hello Brian, hello Carrie, and hello London. You're all trying to make me hungry, aren't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, talking about chocolate this early in the, in the morning here on a, on a Monday.
1: Uh, yeah, well that's, I, I, I understand, I feel the same way. <laughs> Wish I had a piece right now. But um, yeah, thanks John for joining us today. And uh, you're coming from Toronto, right?
2: I sure am. Native Torontonian, one of that rare breed. There are so many of us who live in Toronto who have migrated here from all over the world, but I was born and raised here, and have always
0: lived here. Yeah, I was wondering that, actually, if you were born there and lived there all your life, Um, because I I've mentioned on this show before I lived in Toronto briefly for, well, about five years, but that was a long time ago now, over ten years ago now. I've been back in London, so So I've had a taste of the, the Toronto life.
2: Yeah. it's good when uh, the when the pandemic uh will go away we, we will uh, be able to resume the kinds of things that make toronto so exciting to me restaurants and, and concerts and theater but you know so much of that has been has been uh, shut down due, due to the pandemic but seems like we're opening up maybe we're opening up too soon for my liking but uh anyway
1: yeah, well, that's where, that's where it gets tricky, right? I feel the same way sometimes. Um, Brian and I have had kidney transplants, and so we're a little more cautious about things, and our doctors are a little more cautious with us. And uh, But I know you, John, you do like to get out to, you love to travel, but you also love to just go to museums wow. and um, a whole bunch of things, and that's kind of how you and I got a bit re- more reconnected again recently was through some work um, with, uh, well, OCAD University there, right?
2: museums are one of my many passions Um, I'm a history lover I've traveled the world and uh, part of it is my desire to visit some of the places I've read about and you know a lot of times people wonder why in the world would a blind person want to travel what do we get out of it anyway and I I, I actually take the opposite view that for us it's even more important to travel because and i'm not suggesting this is is anywhere as good it's not but sighted person can look at a picture can appreciate a place we can't do that and so actually being in a place i think is even more important for us
1: yeah no i mean we could spend the whole episode just talking about travel
0: yeah i was gonna say so when john reached out uh, to us near the end of last year about coming on the show he listed so many different topics and i think advocacy is going to be a big one that we touch on today but there's so many other ones you mentioned filing human rights complaints museums and art galleries which you briefly touched on there already your your hatred of technology <sighs> your your love for world travel so there's so many things we uh, we can talk about here but i think i think you make a really good point about traveling in particular if if you're blind where some people might assume oh you can't see why why would you care to travel cuz a lot of people focus so much on sightseeing but really the thing is that you get such a feeling when you're in a different place, and and uh, and that's a big part of it, I think. And and you know, not being able to see, you still get a very good feel of of the environment and the differences in that sense. And and in some ways, you're more aware than than everyone else because we're always focusing on our surroundings when we're traveling independently. So
2: probably the best example of that, Brian, is the old city of Jerusalem, where there are smells and sounds whenever you're walking. Uh, through the historic part of the city, it, it's perhaps the best example of what you just talked about.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. yeah, no,
1: I've done some travel writing and uh, I, I did a, a piece on um, with Expedia Uh, They interviewed me once and it's the same, I got a bit of feedback like that. It's like, well, you're missing out on so much because you can't see, you know, what does travel really hold for you? And it's just sad that the world thinks that, some of the world thinks that way. Um, So that's why, uh, that's why we're doing Outlook and that's why I write and uh, that's why we have to um, explain more of how we see things.
0: But yeah, Carrie, you'd mentioned, so. So John here we'll get to know uh, throughout today's episode here on Outlook, but he's been involved in, in advocacy now for, what is it, John, going on? How many how many decades now?
2: Uh, since 1975, <clears throat> when uh, a funny thing happened on the way to my planned life, when I <laughs> attended a public meeting during the unmet needs of blind Canadians study in Toronto, and met the late Mike Yale and jumped fet- feet first into advocacy those days of course were very different than today the the, the 70s were a time of, at, of activism and a lot of us had never never tried it and and for most of us who got involved it was the first maybe only opportunity where we had got the opportunity to have some impact on things that imp, that affected our lives we got to develop policies we got to talk to politicians because that's what an an organization of the blind that focuses on advocacy does and so on uh, that fateful night for me march 4th 1975
1: almost like the anniversary almost here yeah uh, it's It's just a couple of days ago yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's done friday Uh,
2: four days after the blind organization of ontario with self-help tactics known as boost was founded and it was founded in an unusual way. Most times a group gets founded after a group of people come together and talk about forming a group and figuring out a few things and then deciding to do it. This happened very, very differently. Four days before this meeting, Mike, who had traveled to Windsor to meet my longtime friend, the late Jerry Gohan, who was very important in my own development, uh, when I went to university in Windsor, um, they met in Jerry's living room, and instead of talking about how they might form a group, they decided then and there to form Boost and announce to the world it was in existence and invited folks to, to join it. That's a very different approach. And then the two things of course happened. One was this large public meeting on March 4th. And by the time of June, the Conference of Blind Youth had taken place, which was as its name implied, brought together a bunch of young blind people to talk about their unmet needs. This was part of the unmet needs study. But I can say this nowadays, uh, it was really used as a boost organizing weekend. Uh, And because of a federal program called the Company of Young Canadians, a program that was designed to enable organizations to hire community organizers. That was its purpose. So by June 15th, Boost had two staff people, myself and Joanne, well then Joanne Balsam, later Joanne Yale. We got a small office in the Donvale Community Center, a a whole stack of cards were told to go and organize Boost. Something neither of us, really had experience in doing something probably neither of us ever planned to do but the threesome of mike joanne and i worked very well mike came from the u.s had a lot of organizing experience i was a canadian political animal and joanne had uh, a lot of real good people skills that uh, were really helpful so the three of us worked together and and boost came about
1: wow yeah, that's the thing, right? It's getting people involved, and in, we often think that there is a lot of apathy out there, but I, I know someone who's just newly getting into advocacy, uh, I, I'm still finding it fairly intimidating, the idea of um, working with, you know, reaching out to politicians and, and, and the the organizing it, it, it requires, and these organizations that, you know, like the CNIB, I, I just haven't really, I've been, I guess, searching to find organizations that I feel... Um, I could work with and it's just really hard to to really find where you fit and um, so I think it's important to talk to others like yourself to hear what it was like in the 70s you know before Brian and I came along in the 80s um, and of course it started with our parents our, our parents did advocating when we were children to get us into a you know, our, our our community school and all that stuff and to get us the uh, you know the assistance we needed in class and the braille braille
0: yeah, technology
1: it's, so it's you know and now it's all on us kind of and we want to make you know we want to make things different too better too so it's great to talk with you John and hear all the experience you do have over these last several decades here Because
0: yeah, oh,
2: back then times were very different you know there mm-hmm. was no protective legislation right. there was a human rights code but persons with disabilities weren't covered in 1975
1: right this is um, for the charter and
2: opportunities were very scarce and they mm-hmm. and unfortunately they still are Yeah, Uh, public and self-education was was the other the other primary objective of boost, and those things are still necessary. But since then, you know, there's been a lot of progress with technology. We now have legislation. I'm not sure that it's accomplished what we hoped it would have. There are some improvements in social assistance. Uh, cities are much more accessible you know most cities now have a lot of curb cuts if not curb cuts at uh, every corner there's a lot of paratransit in cities a lot of this did not exist back then so back in 75 part of the question was how can people with disabilities come together the the simple issue of how do we get together to talk about doing work Uh, obviously for us as blind people that that wasn't as great a problem as it might have been for you know folks with other disabilities Uh, and the other difference I suppose is back then a a lot of us not all of us but a lot of us went to schools for the blind and so Mm we had a bit of a network. Today, one of the problems is how do we find each other? How do we find each other? And I know even back then, when I think of my own story, I I set out to become a lawyer.
1: Mm.
2: Of course, uh, as time went on, I came to realize that Perry Mason and the practice of law have very little in common with each other. (laughs) But back then, I decided that getting The books that I would need was going to be too difficult that Mm -hmm. probably wouldn't be such an issue today but had I known another blind lawyer and there were some at the time I didn't know any of them but had I known one maybe through mentorship I I might have become a lawyer I of course have dabbled in the law as uh, you know doing legislative advocacy which is what I do most of my my life these days then I considered teaching, but when I was in during my checkered university career, jobs in teaching in general and in high school history in particular dried up, hmm. and uh, i dabbled in in education as as a trainer, as an educator, as a writer. So I've dabbled in, in in those things, uh, but as I say, I, I suddenly entered the world of uh, community organizing something I had planned on doing and uh, that uh, has become my my lifelong passion I I was a civil servant for 24 years and during that time I wasn't able to be as high profile as prominent especially in the media as I would have liked to be I, I do enjoy doing media work, though that can be dangerous especially when you're dealing with print media where you have no control over what they're going to use. Right. You know, you know, you, you may talk to a even a, a writer who seems very supportive of your issue. You talk to them for twenty minutes and the next day you see the story and of course you've got one sentence in the context of a larger article. You just hope that They took the most important point for you when they write. Uh, An on-air discussion like this, the dynamic for me is totally different. You know, I I, I have much greater control over getting out my message. And I can assure you that whenever I do an on-air interview, if it's like five minutes, whatever the the interviewer wants to, where the interviewer wants to go if I wake up mad about something that morning it will get covered some way somehow <laughs> I will I will link from Slip where it in the there
0: somehow make a connection. starts
2: to where I want to end up I assure you I will do it it, it was the other piece the, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from Mike when he said this was when uh, I did my very first media event at a time when there was very little story of Booth to tell. Joanne and I had five minutes on city TV and I thought to myself, how in the world are we going to cover five minutes?
1: And it was both of you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Believe <laughs> Two me, those five
2: minutes went by awfully fast. <laughs> we did it. I don't remember what we said, but they went by awfully fast. But what Mike said was when the interviewer asked his first question, just keep talking. <sighs>
0: Yeah, I mean, well, Carrie, we,
2: you, you you probably already noticed that I, that I've adopted his his advice.
0: <laughs> we already because Carrie early on and when we started Outlook, we had some some media coverage pretty much pretty quickly in, yeah. And um, it, it, you know, I haven't had nearly the amount of experience as as, uh, as John has here, but um, you know, you notice that where it is such a limited time, and that's why we love this platform like Outlook, where. And it's tricky, because you don't want to keep people for too long, because you know people have attention spans and all this stuff, and it seems to be getting maybe worse and worse, but at the same point, you can't, in my opinion, really have a meaningful, full-out discussion when things are so quick-paced, and and that's why I like this show, where it provides this platform of an hour to to really be able to dig deep into a conversation and, and not feel rushed, and be able to get out your message and not be censored, because, Cara, you know, there were certain things like article titles, you know, about having the blind people see see their world like plays on words and things that you know are fine but they're sort of cliche and it's just you lose that control obviously we're we're glad to have the coverage of course we really appreciate it but at the same point it's hard to and that's why journalism in, in itself is a is a tricky career Karen, and i know you've talked about that with your with your writing abilities in an area that you could get into but it's a tricky one because you are yeah like i don't know bias comes into it and then you know your words are sometimes taken and, and spun in, in ways that you don't want them to be, or and taken out of context, and
2: and then there's what your editor does with what you submit. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> yep.
1: Exactly. Um, yeah, let's let's go back a bit before this um, before the '70s. Then maybe like. Let us know a bit about your childhood, John. Uh, your blindness, what, what what it was like being a child um, back then with disability. Um, were you in your neighborhood school or were you in a school for the blind then? Oh my goodness,
2: can I remember back that
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us what you can remember. Yeah, just anyth- anything you think.
2: I, I was born with retinitis pigmentosa, okay. I right. gather. Um, I don't remember that part, but I. what I mean is I had some usable vision up until my early twenties. Uh, like a, I, I cannot find anyone back in my family that also had RP and RP is typically, or most often, though not always a hereditary condition. I can't find it in my family. Mm-hmm. So my vision deteriorated gradually as I got older. So I had an unusual uh Uh, Schooling in that I started in what we call in Toronto a sight saving class. This Hmm. was six grades in one room taught by one teacher. Fathom that one.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: And we used larger print books, larger print materials, and Green tinted boards, not blackboards, where there was less glare.
1: Wow, that's that's something so, new to me. I mean, I, I used to see a blackboard if I looked really cl- if I was close enough, and if they used a bright colored chalk. Um, but I don't, I wasn't aware of other kind of chalkboards.
2: Yeah. So after grade four, the notion was my vision was improving. Now, since my condition is RP, I don't know how that's possible, but. That was the notion. So I I switched to regular school for grades five and six. You know, then kind of then it then kind then of
1: then reminds then me then of then a schoolhouse. It reminds me of a schoolhouse. You know, back you know back in the small schoolhouses back in the day, they'd have all the grades in one room, and they would have to sort of have one teacher teaching different levels, and uh, and that's kind of what they did, right? When they were trying, to, they're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna start integrating children with disabilities, but we're, this is how far we're gonna go with it. Is that kind of what it was?
2: Well. That, that's quite close to what it was, really. It was one room in a regular school, but yeah, it was six grades, one teacher yeah, all together. And I don't know that we had any integrated activities, although maybe I don't remember. I only stayed for grades one to four, then I moved on. And then grades seven and eight, I went back to a senior sight saving class. See, we had four of them in Toronto situated around the city and so they were, they were grades one to six and then students who were at any of those four might end up in the in the senior one but then I decided that I knew I wanted to go on to university and that class wasn't going to get me there so I then switched to the school for the blind for high school.
0: Right, and what and that's, around and that's what year what would this have?
2: Braille was between my eighth and ninth grade year.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, so what uh, around what year would that have been then? Because again, we we talked, you know, we talked recently with with Peter Field here on the show, who I'm sure you you know, John, um, and you know, he's talking about being you know, the the first sort of people in the experiment of, of integration. So I imagine this was, uh, you know, even around that time or before then.
2: I was in from sixty three to sixty seven, and during the time i was there clint miller who is still a good friend uh was one of the people who left branford and was integrated uh gordon leg who now lives in the united states um maybe preceded clint there weren't many at that time obviously right. that uh, that trend has uh, accelerated and i think some people have done well and I think sometimes the notion of integrated education has is a bit of a misnomer because sometimes people are well-accommodated and sometimes students are just basically dumped into a regular class and basically forced to fend for themselves. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's one of those things that in, in theory it seems like it's such a – great idea in my opinion and I still believe in integration over having a separate school for the blind but the problem is that it's not that simple it's not like oh you're integrated and everything's great a lot of it's so specific based on what school board it's at and where what city it's in and what what qualified people are around to actually help out in the process so there's, there's so many factors that go into it
2: yeah, and these days at what point does a young blind person get introduced to technology get introduced to braille get introduced to mobility so that, you know, they, they can uh, really integrate fully, not only with the, the academic side of schooling, but also, you know, playing with their peers, participating in extracurricular activities and, per, you know, benefiting from the, the entire possibilities that uh, the education experience offers.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. So what was the School for the Blind like in your, in your experience back then?
2: Well, I probably have a bit of a different view of it than some people do. I, I was just there to, to get an education. Um, and I think as an education, the then called the Ontario School for the Blind was, was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a number of us graduated and went on to university. Yeah. Socially, it was in the dark ages. And I think this stems from the whole notion, well, partly it stems from the fact that the staff at the school were obviously responsible for us yeah. because we lived at the school. But I also think it's uh, a, a fear that two blind people getting together will produce more blind people.
1: I know it's funny that the, I always find it interesting that they that they did group us all together in these schools and at the same point there was a lot of uh, prejudice against the idea of procreating and and all this almost eugenic, you know, eugenic stuff and and it's like how are you going to you got to keep the boys and girls separate that you know that doesn't solve the problem um, but we
2: we we were in the same classes together but that's about the extent of, of integration. So you could there pass was,
1: braille notes to each other if you yeah, had a crush. We did, we did, yeah. we,
2: and we did some of that. And uh, uh, so, so, some people found other ways. Let's put it that way. But yeah. but it was certainly frowned upon. And uh, the sexes were definitely quite separated and discouraged from fraternizing.
1: Uh. Yeah. Now, it's our whole issue with um, schools, uh, residential type schools, right? Where the, where you are, a bunch of kids stay overnight because there's only so many of these schools and there are kids coming from all over the place. And uh, we knew kids, though, who went home every night and and then others who didn't. So
2: There were some kids who actually lived in Brantford mm-hmm. who were day students. Not very many, but there was a few.
1: Yeah, I knew a few but families who actually moved to Brantford so their kid could go to the school but not have to stay there.
2: Yes, I know I know a, uh, a woman from Kelowna BC she moved to Brantford so that her daughter could could uh, you know went to Brantford I guess lived at home but when I said that I criticize Brantford differently than many others I I don't criticize it for what it did to me I criticize it for what it didn't do for us you know, since we were there all the time and if you came from the west as some students did from as far away as alberta they got to go home at christmas and at uh, summertime that was it Mm -hmm. Uh, that school had a chance it had an opportunity to help us prepare for life in the sighted world and i think it failed Mm. and that's part of the you know the the lack of socializing that uh, we didn't get the opportunity to learn while we were there. It may be different now, but uh, I, I think that was a, a major uh, a major gap in in our upbringing for and especially for students who started at Bradford from grade one, as some did. Right.
0: For sure. So uh, t- today here on Outlook, we are speaking with John Ray. He's been involved in disability rights and advocacy and and, uh, for many years now member of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities National Council co-chair of the Alliance for Quality of Blind Canadians Government Relations Committee many many things here for for John that we are going to get into today on Outlook but I think now we're going to take a quick break for some promos but then we'll be right back with John Ray and more Outlook Radio Western.
1: Welcome back to the second half of Outlook today on this Monday morning. First first show of March here. I'm with Brian, my brother, and we are talking with John Ray. And John has worked uh, in the um, provincial government um, for 24 years and then retired. And uh, you do a lot of work as Brian sort of pointed out there before the break. And we're seeing how fast even an hour goes by, aren't we?
2: We sure are. You talked, Kerry, briefly about Advocacy and your uh, maybe reticence. And I, I have to say to you and anyone who's listening who uh, may feel reticent, even as much as intimidated, that it's that talking to politicians isn't as tough as you may think it is. Right. They may have more money than we do, they may have impact on our lives that we wish we had. But first of all they are human beings like us and their role is to represent their constituents obviously some do a much better job of it than others do that's that's true um and part of the reason why i believe we are falling further behind is in my view our lives really don't matter you know we now live in a in a world where black lives matter it's about that's about time yep. we, li- we live in a world where uh, indigenous lives seem to matter somewhat yeah, that's why well, it's, it's even longer news. overdue
1: yeah, hopefully it's but not I maintain just
2: a... our lives don't matter yeah. and part of the reason is that there aren't enough of us in places where decisions get made there aren't enough of us in offices that decide what technology gets made and whether accessibility is built in from the beginning or added on later. There aren't enough of us in uh, ministers offices where public policy decisions get made. I maintain there aren't many of us in Premier Ford or Prime Minister Trudeau's offices and so two things can happen here. Either our issues can simply get forgotten about because we're not there. Now, oh, maybe three things. There, There is great uh, uh, a great list of issues competing for decision-makers' attention, yeah. that's true. But the fact that we aren't present, I think is partly a, an issue of public policy that sometimes we are consciously excluded. And you notice that when 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 government consults who do they consult? Do they consult us, folks who have lived experiences in our organizations, or do they primarily consult service organizations? We need to be present at any table that deals with legislation, new policies or programs, because after all, they affect us. We have a we should have a right to be there. And that to me is the number one issue is our lack of representation in places where decisions are made.
0: Well, I think again, and, and you talk a lot about this, so I want to quickly mention I don't know if this is published available for anyone to read yet online, but Johnson has a great article that he wrote that's called Building Back Better Will Disabled Lives Finally Be Valued? Uh, paper prepared for, it was prepared for a presentation at the Disability and Work in Canada 2021 National Employment Conference. Um, so this paper really outlined a lot of what we're starting to get into here. And a lot of this still, too, I, I think also, and I think it was another article you sent us that um, somebody else had written that you just thought was interesting to read, and it was a great. You sent so many great uh, informative articles. We really appreciate it um, for the show. But again, I think a lot of this still ties back to this this ableism that's sort of ingrained in in society, and it's so deeply... You know, ingrained there that that people don't even notice it a lot of the times that that they're excluding us or we're not being included, and and this is just so many different big topics to think about. And
1: it's and it's the thing about we're not like just blaming a bunch of sighted people for this. Like the problem is is that it's also internalized ableism in a lot of us, and so both of those together make for a tricky.
0: Well, it talks about coming back to advocacy to where you know and the. we touched t- John was touching earlier on the the community and and the fact that you know sometimes we don't feel as connected as we should be and that's a big discussion that we have on the show a lot and the fact is you know up until I was about 30 I didn't I only really had a couple friends who were blind everyone I knew was sighted and you know I I just wasn't as comfortable around blind people I'll admit and I just didn't quite it's almost like you're trying to hide that part or try to instead of embracing differences and I think that also ties into the world To where it's sort of this solution-based focus of, or curing focus of, you know, we need to find a cure for blindness, and of course, these things are important, this needs to be looked into as well, but at the same point, the focus is so much on this medical model instead of really branching out to the social model of, how can we embrace these differences and, and really make them benefit us instead of constantly trying to fight them or trying to figure out a way to get rid of them so that, you know, we can all see or something. Um, so well, this whole thoughts.
2: business of ableism is why Boost in its initial uh, you know, decisions about where it wanted to focus its work, focused on self-education and public education, Th- those, those two things do go hand in hand. And that, of course, reminds me of my experience with my ophthalmologist that you may find interesting. When I was about 18 or somewhere in there, my ophthalmologist at the time said that my vision would likely remain constant well knowing what i know now about rp that was an unlikely diagnosis because most people with rp their vision does deteriorate as you get older so i think this comes from the 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 curing folks you know medical practitioners their whole raison d'etre is to cure people to make sick people well. Well, there's a fundamental disconnect here in that as disabled people, we aren't sick. We may get sick. Some of us got COVID, some of us get cold, some of us get the flu. We get sick like everybody else does. But living day to day as disabled people, we aren't sick. This poses a real problem for the medical profession. And so I don't know whether my doctor was either incompetent, which I really doubt, or a good liar, which I also doubt, or just one of those uh, doctors who was having trouble dealing with the fact that, you know, his training talked about curing people. And a lot of us who live with permanent disabilities are not going to get cured, cannot get cured. and. Even some of us would take the position we might not even want to be cured even if it were possible.
1: Well, we could spend our lives trying to chase down some possible cure out there, right? And and, and then you wouldn't live. What kind of life well, is that?
2: It's not, it's not my priority. No. My, my priority has always been helping those of us who have a disability deal with the barriers and discrimination and uh, attempts to fit into a society where many of us have real trouble belonging
1: yeah and I've had I've had really actually great experiences with eye doctors in my life um you know, but I still do feel like, yeah, most doctors, they they feel a little bit inadequate when they realize that they maybe can't cure somebody. And then when they realize that's not even what the person is, is looking for from them, they're a little bit um, set adrift into, into what to do and they don't always handle it right. I always feel like there is a disconnect between the medical f- field, specifically um, ophthalmologists and, and things and, and blind people. So.
2: so what we need in my mind is every a uh, professional training program, whether it's doctors, lawyers, and and also architects and other professionals, they need to add into their training curriculum some understanding about disability and our reality. And especially nowadays when we have more and more legislation that is required to eliminate barriers and prevent the introduction of new barriers. And of course, uh, you folks in London are dealing with one of those issues right now, and that is the the new menace. It's the word I use on our streets called e-scooters.
0: Yeah, I've been I, hearing I, that in the I'm, news more and more lately, and uh, s- some stuff in Ottawa, too, I've been hearing about that. but
2: It's uh, the Fats in the Fire in Ottawa tomorrow night. There's a committee in Mississauga that's dealing with it, and I know London is looking at it as well, and I understand that it's become a fairly popular mode of transit, but for us, as especially blind people or folks with other disabilities or seniors or children, the notion of an e-scooter whizzing around us is a disconcerting notion. And in Ottawa, the report that the city produced, a very one-sided report, but the number of complaints they received by people uh, indicated that a lot of times these these scooters that are that are intended or to stay on the roads end up on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. and that can impede uh, pedestrians' pathway, and uh, they may be parked. Anywhere, which gets in our way, and I know certainly thinking about downtown Toronto where I live, there's already enough sidewalk clutter. I don't need any more to think you <laughs> just, just just the same. Right. Uh, so um, there's been a campaign to uh, try and prevent the extension of e-scooters in various cities across the province. And it's a tough fight because uh, the industry is uh, lobbying hard. And uh, I have to say, it seems to me that uh, what business wants, business too often gets, Mm -hmm. whether that's extending the size of patios into what used to be a pedestrian only space, whether that means uh, concentrating condos in particular areas of the city, or, or whatever. It seems that uh, the big business rules the world.
0: Yeah, and you notice these things, you know, and of course the the pandemic the last couple of years really brought so many things to light that were already issues, of course, before the pandemic, but just it it helped sort of, you know, bring them into the spotlight and emphasize even more the the gaps and and that are out there. And, uh, you know, you talk about the patios, like, for example, you you know, where they're making patios bigger to to prevent, uh, you know, spread and everything like that. So people are outside more. But then that takes up pedestrian space. And then, you, you know, you sent us a bunch of articles really outlining a lot of things that come across with these like the recent convoys and protests against the the mandates and all that stuff and how those things affect people with disabilities but that we're just not you know and it's it's tricky of course there's so many big issues that the that governments and, and so many people are have to deal with but at the same point it, it never feels like we're really brought into these discussions and these all of these new changes and decisions do affect affect us so it's a uh,
2: uh, for your listeners in London who may not have had to deal with the convoys as much as certainly as Ottawa has, or mm-hmm.
0: luckily, I, I heard we, there was a couple things in, here. We in
2: Toronto have same. had some of it, but no, nowhere near like Ottawa. You know, it has prevented some people from getting out to, to get groceries. It's prevented some of their caregivers to coming to 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 get to them to provide necessary care these uh, uh, demonstrations, these, uh, uh, you know, clogging up the city have had real negative impact on a number of members of our community. And when we think about COVID, you know, the question is, can people get to where inoculations can be acquired? It's one thing if we live in a city like London or Toronto, it's probably not so difficult. But if you live in a smaller community where we have lost so much of our intercity travel, uh, the kind of isolation that we as disabled people can face even living in a, in a major city, uh, what they have to contend with in a smaller community, I think is probably hard for many of us to conceive of because life there is, you know, if you, if you don't have access to someone who can drive you where you need to go, you're going to be very isolated. At least in a, in a big city, we may have paratransit. We, we have a regular transit system. We may be able to get where we need to go. But we're also, of course, as, as blind people facing the fact that the at home testing that many people are using it's not usable by us it doesn't talk it doesn't give the results do not give off any any sounds and this is a growing problem the the fact that so many things nowadays don't talk they aren't accessible to us kiosks the fact that we may have to start uh uh, ringing up our own groceries Mm -hmm. all these kinds of things a lot of those in fact most of those uh Uh, kiosks are not accessible to us. And it's our view that if they can make bank machines accessible, and many of them are, in fact, most of them I think are now. Yeah, pretty much. Then why can't we make point of sale terminals or other kinds of kiosks at airports, in in stores? Uh, Why can't we make them accessible? Well, you know, there is work being done on some of this, but as usual, we are an afterthought. So we have to fight hard to get uh, these changes implemented.
1: Yeah, and it's funny to me that it's so easy now with iPhones and other things to to make these touchscreens. And 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 somebody might think a blind person can't use a touchscreen, but the, with the technology these days, so then I don't know why it doesn't and extend ag- to everything. And but again, it's-, it's
0: I think a lot of it could t- ties it back to the fact that we just there aren't enough you know people with disabilities or blind people in in so many areas in the workforce in these discussions in government and on and at the table with all of these things that we just are this afterthought when really if we were more involved and there's more and and you know employers and and all of these uh, you know were accepted more and were able to fit into these positions then these things can change but until we're until that happens i just think we're not at the at the front of the discussion and it just people don't think about it whereas of course you know Making these these things accessible from the from the beginning, like a COVID test, would make so much more sense instead of you know a year later being like, oh shoot, maybe we should find a way to make this work for someone who can't who can't see. So,
2: and thinking about this year, we've got elections coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ask. that's municipal, another big one. Municipal yeah. and provincial, at least, and certainly for the provincial election uh, elections, Ontario provides us with electronic machines that make it possible for us to vote independently and to know who we voted for. The federal government doesn't offer anything like that, nothing. They, They offer a template that Overlays,
0: about yeah. Like last year, I, I, you know, voting for the for the federal one there, I went I went in with my dad, and yeah, they did give me the, me the template so I could feel the braille. But then still, I had to have my dad there and to confirm that I was lined up and that it was the right one, right? And you don't want that. You want to be able to to do this independently on your own and be exactly. confident that you voted for the right person that you selected.
2: And I have to tell you, Brian, one night. I was walking home thinking "Now, did I really vote for the candidate I wanted to and I will never know. Mm-hmm. You know. I should be able to count down five or six or whatever I usually have I may have 10 candidates in my writing but hey you know I should be able to count but one night I'm not sure whether I put my mark in the right place or not I will never know. And that's one of the reasons I'm on my way to court later this year against elections canada but like already in, in in canada voting is all over the map some municipalities in this province don't use any paper ballots mm-hmm. they have replaced them with online or telephone or machines uh, i i'm not trying to get rid of a paper ballot. I I think in the future that may happen, but my goal is to make sure that there are various alternatives. In in Toronto, our elections office is even working on the idea of voted home braille ballots. Hmm. And I think that's uh, a really interesting idea. They're trying to make it work for this year's municipal election. They're working hard at it. I don't know if we'll get there this year because there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite here for either telephone or online. Yeah. We, 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 we do have the machines, so we have that already. But especially when we voted federally, it would have been nice to have been able to, to vote at home and avoid having to go out into the community to vote, you know, risking catching the pandemic, which you know, we
0: had to do if we wanted to vote. Yeah. All right, so for anyone who has been listening here today, you're tuned into Outlook on Radio Western here out of London, Ontario. We are speaking with John Ray from Toronto, Ontario. Huge advocate for disabilities and blindness and has been involved in uh, the community for for many, many years now. Carrie and I, you know, just getting into advocacy the past, you know, coming up five years more, more or less here. So, Question I, I really do have for you, John, is how do you how do you keep going with it? Because it's and again, I think it's it's all about life and I talk a lot about balance and I think sometimes things are so extreme one way or the other and it's it's gotta be about balance because it's it's so important, but yet it's it's so exhausting and it's a constant battle, of course, an uphill battle that, you know, there's always new things to to work on and deal with. So how do you kind of keep Keep up with it for for so long, and and kind of continue to do it in you as you in your retirement. There, how do you how do you keep that up without sort of getting burnt out and getting to a point sometimes where it's like oh, I just don't have the energy to be to be doing this?
2: Alan, what's that? <laughs> um, it's tough. I, I I compare advocacy a little bit to uh, a wonderful folk song by Pete Seeger. Uh, that that talks about gardening inch by inch and row by row I'm going to make this garden grow and that's kind of how advocacy works and it's frustrating it's difficult Um, because you may appear somewhere talk to some group and have some impact with them that you may never ever know Mm -hmm. Right. Um, whereas if you're working with a person, you you see their progress. You know you, you can chart their progress, and that's that's obviously rewarding as a person grows before you. Uh, with advocacy, you've got to understand that it's the long haul. It it, it occasionally you have short term victories, and they are important to keep your uh, enthusiasm and your momentum going. They are important. So when you develop a Plan. I think it's important to try and build in short and medium and longer term objectives uh, because the the big issues that we've talked about here uh, a lot of them are issues that were being dealt with back in the seventies and we're still at them like housing, accessible housing. A lot of groups now talk about affordability and housing the home homeless. Those are good issues. No problem with them. But not many of these groups also talk about accessibility and already there are young disabled people who have trouble finding accessible housing in the community. And of course we have an aging population, people who are forced to move out of their neighborhoods, move out of their housing because the. the house was just not built with accessibility in mind. Well, there's no excuse to to continue doing that. There's just no excuse to continue doing that, but getting groups to to pick up the need for accessibility is becoming a a real struggle. Um, The, I I guess my real answer, Brian, is that uh, the need for change and to make things better for those who are coming along is rooted firmly in my blood and it still is and yes it is tiring and yes there are days when uh, I've got too many new reports sitting in front of me where do I start Uh, like today (laughs) because there's a new report on uh, ADP there's the new right to read report from the Human Rights Commission and there is the report on the proposed K-12 education standard under the AODA awaiting my attention. And I fear each of those are at least 100 pages. Yeah. So where do I start? It's one of those days. So I'm really glad you've had the chance to talk to you folks because uh, that's enabled me to put off that decision for a couple
0: <laughs> more hours.
1: Well, I was going to ask, are you, are you? have you ever been a gardener, John?
2: No, never have. No. <laughs> yeah, because no. our
1: our mothers I was always a big gardener all our lives, and you, I know, I you know, I I don't deal with the the natural world as much as I'd like. It sounds nice, the idea of tending to plants or having a you know something growing, because it does teach great lessons, I think. And so, great great analogy you use there for that. Yeah, it
2: does. And the more plants we grow, the, the better for our environment. <laughs> the better we breathe. That's another disability rights issue that many people may not think about right and how many of us are involved in environmental groups you know when when mm-hmm. I, I I have an interest in that area myself and we have a fair number of groups in Toronto which one would I really want to join i I don't know and then I get and then I get busy with all of these uh, You know, disability rights issues and uh, my desire to travel. Don't know if I'll be able to do much more of that at my age, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. I certainly have a long list of places I'd still like to visit.
0: And that's the thing about the pandemic, too, is
2: uh, uh, to get sidetracked. And of course, I'm an avid reader, I love music, and I'm a sports nut. So uh, (laughs) I have lots of, uh, I, I do have other things going on in my life, and I think that helps. Uh, reduce the prospects of burnout for me, but every once in a while, I need to take take a couple of days off and uh, hide myself into a good book or or March Madness or uh, something like that.
0: <laughs> well, that's great then that you that you do have those other interests because that is a big part. I think is just is balancing like you you made the joke there earlier that it's 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 easier said than done sometimes and 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 stuff. But you have to we have to have those things, and for me, it's music, right? And you need to have that extra. That separate thing that can just take you out of that for a while, and um, and then you come back refreshed, and you can actually you know work more effectively when you're dealing with stuff and so instead of overdoing it all the time, and then just being becoming burnt out. Because I think burnout is a is a very common thing that can happen, and I've already noticed it. You know, I'm only five years in, so I plan to continue throughout my life. It's just, and I think also too, at least for me, I've noticed, and maybe you realize this too, John, is just the older I've gotten, I've I've been thinking about advocacy more and it's something I've gotten into because you do start, you think more and more about what are kids going through now and you know, it's hard even for me to imagine being in graduating high school, you know over 15 years ago now it's hard to imagine what elementary school and high school would be like now for someone who's blind, so it's it's one of those things you, you think about more and more um,
2: but well, for you folks or for any of your listeners, if you've been a little slow to uh, become advocates. There's no need to apologize. There's room for you all. Get involved. The Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians is always looking for new people, uh, as are other groups. You know, the, our, our movement is has never been as strong as I wish it had become. Mm. So uh, there's room for everybody and doing different things. You don't. Anyone who wants to get involved in advocacy doesn't have to enjoy being on the front line like I do. <laughs> you know, you, if, if you're uh, not ready to... Go and make a presentation to a parliamentary committee or talk on CBC or whatever. That's okay. That's okay. There are lots of things that one can do. Doing research, helping to write, making contacts. These are all important parts. I think people who are a bit more in the background do not get the credit that they justly deserve and I always want to talk about that because wherever you are in your uh, development as an advocate there is room for you we need you and you know it's it it takes a while to learn I, I have found folks that uh, every time I get interested in a new issue, and I'm interested in so much, that's one of my problems. Uh, It's a blessing and a curse really for me. Um, I find that the learning curve often tends to be a lot steeper than I was expecting. And I I, I should know better by now, I should know better. But um, if you're just getting into advocacy, there is a learning curve and you'll find that there is some additional complexity when you move from working at the local level to moving to the provincial level to the federal level and to the international level mm-hmm. uh, the complexity does grow and all of those areas are important uh, the, the old adage of Pete Seeger was uh... think globally but organize locally and you know what we do in our cities you know what we do about transit in our cities, what we do about employment at our at, at, at our city governments, what we do about representation, what we do about e-scooters on our roads, these are things that are close to where we live and affect our quality of life. Mm-hmm. And when I think about quality of life, Ron, you talk about music, there's few things that are better for one's psyche than that's some good music.
0: Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well we I all...
1: love I love that adage, adage about, you know, think globally but act locally. That's a sounds like a great place to I guess wrap up the conversation. This hour has flown by <laughs> like I knew it would. Yeah,
0: as it always does. And John I think there's just so much we can cover. So we'd love to have you on again and, and at some point to to chat more because I think there's so much so much to cover Ow. with you.
2: Well, we can cover when we can cover some of those other topics on a future time. So good, to, good to join you. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, London, if you anyone wants to get in touch with me, uh, write me at thepenguinatrogers dot com. I'm pretty easy to find. And uh, Carrie and Brian know my phone number. If uh, if you get in touch with them, I'm sure they can pass you on to me. I'm happy to hear from people, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks for having me on, guys.
0: Thanks, John. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, take care. See everyone next week. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.